Thank you, uh, Pastor Barry, and good morning. It's great to be together again, two Sundays in a row. And in case you didn't know, uh, I serve, my wife and I serve together at Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. There is information about our college, graduate school, and seminary. You can get online degrees. We were just approved by the Accrediting Association to offer four online degrees. So you can stay in New Jersey and study at our school or come down to South Carolina. And um, I'd love for you to find out more about our school. There is information there in the back. Please uh, take advantage of that today. It won't be here after we leave uh, this afternoon. Uh, Seeing the one, serving the many is the theme of our missions conference. And before we get into that, I have good news and bad news for you this morning. First, the good news. The good news is that the percentage of people living in the entire world who claim to be personal followers of Jesus Christ has grown from 3% of the total world population to over 12% of the total world population in my lifetime. In 1945, the year that I was born, and now you know how old I am, there were 80 million people in the entire world who claimed to be personal followers of Jesus Christ. Today, in the year 2012, that number has grown to over 800 million, and the number continues to grow, and the percentage continues to grow. We are living in the most unprecedented time of spiritual harvesting that the world has ever known. More people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ right now than any other time in the history of the world. That is good news. Now the bad news. As we sit here this morning, nine out of every ten people living in the world are spiritually lost and outside of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Nine out of every ten. And you passed some of them on your way here this morning. And some of you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, you just told us there were 800 million believers. Yes, but there are seven billion people in the world. So if you do the math, that means approximately one out of ten knows the Lord, nine out of ten do not. Two out of every three people living in the world today not only are lost spiritually, but have never heard a clear explanation of the gospel. No one has ever told them how they can be saved through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Two out of every three people. And you pass some of them on your way here this morning. And one out of every three people living in the world today not only is lost, not only has never once heard a clear explanation of the gospel, but one out of every three people living in the world today has no one living near them who can tell them about Jesus even if they want to hear. That's 2.35 billion people. Not people that don't believe in Jesus, but people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. And that's why we have a missions conference at Bethlehem Church. And that's why for the last 100 years, we have been doing everything we can to send out more workers to the unreached peoples of the world. And so as we see the one and serve the many, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. And we're going to begin reading in verse 19 of Matthew 28. Jesus is speaking here, and this is what he says. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, period. If you and I take this single sentence seriously, it will radically affect everything we do and everywhere we go. This single sentence that we have just read from God's holy word has been rightly called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Another way to say that would be to say the huge task the Great Commission. And in this sentence, which we have just read from our Bibles, Jesus tells us what He wants us to do. He tells us where or to whom He wants us to do that. And He tells us how. And all those things are seen in the one sentence we just read from God's Holy Word. And the way to see all those things is to study the verbs. There are four verbs in the sentence that we just read together. One main verb and three helping verbs. You, you heard about the little boy at school that was having trouble with his verbs. He kept getting the tenses all mixed up, past, present, and future. His middle-aged school teacher was very frustrated with him. She made him stay after school one day, and for a solid hour she drilled him by giving him sentence after sentence. And after each sentence, he would have to tell her the tense of the main verb in that sentence. After about an hour, he started to get them all right. She said, Danny, I'm so happy. I'm going to give you one more sentence. If you get this right, you can go home. What is the tense of the main verb in this sentence? I am beautiful. He looked at her with great conviction and said, past tense. All right, all right, okay. But we have to look at the verbs in the sentence we just read. There's one main verb, and that's seen in the words, make disciples. Do you see that there in your Bible? I've underlined that in my Bible. That is the commission of our Lord. We are to make disciples, not converts, but disciples. Do you know the difference? Converts grow old in the Lord. Disciples grow up in the Lord. And we are commanded to make disciples. And then Jesus tells us where or to whom we are to do that. He says, make disciples of all nations. Do you see that there in your Bible? Notice that he doesn't say make disciples of some nations. He doesn't say make disciples of most nations. He says make disciples of all nations. Our Lord's desire is that every man, woman, boy or girl living anywhere on the face of the earth has a chance to hear, understand and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants us to make disciples of all nations. And then he tells us how we are to do that. And the way we see the how of the Great Commission is to look at the other three verbs. There are three helping verbs in the sentence we just looked at in Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, I want you to make disciples three ways. First of all, I want you to make disciples by going. 
See that there in your Bible right at the beginning? It says, therefore, go. It should really say going because it's a participle. It's an I-N-G verb. It's a helping verb. Therefore, going. Then, secondly, by baptizing. And then, thirdly, by teaching. Right down there at the beginning of verse 20. Teaching. Now, these three words are very important for us to understand because this is the how of the Great Commission. We know what our Lord wants us to do. He wants us to make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Three ways. You do that, first of all, by going. So let's just talk about this word for a minute, this word go. This is a strong Bible word. It's a strong word in the Old Testament. It's a strong word in the New Testament. In fact, you can study this word in Hebrew, in Greek, in Syriac, in Ugaritic, in Aramaic, in French, English, Spanish, Italian. It always means the same thing. It means go. It's a synonym for don't stay. And when Jesus says we can't make disciples of the nations unless we go, watch. He's not talking about just going indiscriminately from anywhere to anywhere, but watch. He's talking about going from where people do have the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ to where people don't have the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about going from where people do know the message of the gospel to where people don't know the message of the gospel. He's talking about going from where people do know about Jesus to where people don't know about Jesus and won't know about Jesus unless someone leaves there and goes there. You can't make disciples of the nations, Jesus says, if you don't go. Now, I realize not everybody here is called and qualified and committed to go. But we all need to be involved in the going process because that's the only way the job is going to get done. And so everyone here this morning needs to be involved in the going process, either as a goer or as a sender. In fact, I know a church in the Midwest that divides its congregation into three groups of people. The goers, the senders, and the disobedient. So we make disciples of the nations, first of all, by going. The second word is the word baptizing. You see that there in your Bible? This is a strong Bible word. And when Jesus says baptizing, he's not just saying, get them wet. And you'll notice that when he says baptizing, he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now watch, when Jesus says this here, he's not telling the baptizer what to say during the ceremony of baptism. Now, I've baptized many people, and it's always a joy to baptize new believers in Christ. And when I baptize people, I almost always say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is not telling the baptizer what to say during the ceremony of baptism. He's telling us what baptism is. Baptism is open public identification with the triune God of the Bible. Watch, there is only one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we make disciples, we call people out to openly identify themselves with the one true God. And so we make disciples of the nations by going, 
by baptizing. And then the third word is the word teaching. And all around the world today, hours before you and I got up, because they're living and working in other time zones, missionaries loved for, prayed for, supported by Bethlehem Church have been already today teaching, teaching, not just by what they say, but by how they live and by the fact that they're there and people can see them and they're helping people to grow up into disciples of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything more exciting to be involved in than the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations by going, baptizing, and teaching. But that's not what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because when you look closely at Matthew chapter 28, you will discover that the Great Commission does not begin with verse 19. The Great Commission begins with verse 18. So look in your Bibles at Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see what I see? Now, you know in the English language, whenever you see the word therefore, it's always referring back to what has just been said before. And so what has Jesus just said before he uses the word therefore? Here's what he has just said. Listen carefully. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, anywhere, everywhere, I am in charge. I am the person who tells everyone else what to do. All authority is mine. Whoa. Question. What right does Jesus Christ have to make such a categorical statement about himself? Answer, he has every right because of who he is. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God Almighty himself, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Of course he has all authority. He's God. But not only because of who he is, but because of what he did. What did Jesus Christ do? He left the perfection of heaven, came to this sin-filled world, lived a perfect life, was unjustly accused of crimes he never committed, was condemned to die, died there on Calvary's cross, not for his own sin, for he had none, but for yours and for mine, was buried in the ground, rose again the third day, was seen by many witnesses. That's why in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, we read that because he did all that, came down, down, down to the humiliation of the cross, because he did all that, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above, at, above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, do you know what the word Lord means? The word Lord means the one who has all authority. The one who tells everyone else what to do. All authority is mine, Jesus says. Now, I just love it when people take notes when I speak. Because I know they're going to remember more. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write something down. Would you write this down? 
The starting point of missions is not missions. Write that down. Just write that down in your notes. The starting point of missions is not missions. And then after you've written that down, I want you to write this down. The starting point of missions is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The starting point of missions is not missions. The starting point of missions is the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why verse 18 comes before verse 19. Now, often when I uh, am invited to speak in a church, I'm invited to speak at their missions conference, and that's what's happening this weekend here at, at Bethlehem. And, uh, and a- as I get to know a congregation and get to know the people and, you know, we feel safe in each other's presence, some people in churches just like Bethlehem will admit to me that their least favorite time of the year is the missions conference. They'll tell me that. And I'll say, why don't you like the missions conference? They say, well, that's when the speakers make you feel guilty, you know. They, they get up there and they talk about, you know, giving more. And then they talk about praying more. And then somebody gets up and talks about going. And, 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 and if you're honest, some people will tell me, honestly, I just feel this internal resistance rising up within me. And I'm saying to myself, I can't wait till we get past this weekend and back to normal. Well, if that's true of you, your problem is not missions. Your problem is lordship. Because the starting point of missions is not missions. The starting point of missions is the lordship of Jesus Christ. A couple years ago, I had the privilege of meeting with 600 young adult Arab followers of Jesus Christ in a country in North Africa. We met out in the desert in a quiet spot. When I flew into that Muslim country, the people that had invited me told me I had to be very careful about what I said at the border as to why I was there. They didn't tell me to lie, but they told me to be very careful. And then at the conference, we were together for a week, 600 young adult Arab believers. It was just such a wonderful time. At the conference, they gave me a list of vocabulary words that I couldn't use publicly. So I couldn't use the word Christian publicly. This is a Muslim country. So for the word Christian, I had to substitute brothers and sisters. So I just said brothers and sisters. They all knew what I was talking about. Uh, Couldn't use the word Muslim. Had to use the word cousin. And so I talked about the importance of reaching our cousins with the love of Jesus, and they all knew what I was talking about. And then I couldn't use the word missions. The word for missions was streams, and the word for missionary was streams worker. And so we had this great conference. And then when the conference was over, I flew uh, back to the United States, and I flew into the Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., and after I went through immigration and I got out into the hallway, you know, in, in, in the airport in Dulles, I just, I just found myself heaving this great sigh of relief. And it was like, all right, I'm back in America. I don't have to worry about what I say privately or publicly because this is a free country. I don't know about you, but I love America. I am red, white, and blue through and through. 
I love our democratic form of government. I love the freedom that we have. I love the fact that not quite four years ago, by a free and fair election, we elected to the highest office of the land a man of color, our current president, Barack Obama. And quite apart from what you think about his philosophy of leadership and so forth, the fact that we elected him to the highest office of the land without a gun being shot, without fraud at the ballot box, that's amazing. That almost doesn't happen anywhere. I mean, I love this country. Now I'm setting you up. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The Christian life is not a democracy. Write it down. The Christian life is not a democracy. And then if you're taking notes, write this down. The Christian life is an absolute monarchy. There is one who is the king. There is one who is in charge. There is one who has all authority. And anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ recognizes his authority, submits absolutely to that, and nothing less than that is the picture of the Christian life given in the pages of God's Word. In fact, I want you to look at this verse in John chapter 13, verse 13. Jesus is speaking and he says this, You call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now remember what the word Lord means? It means the one who has all authority, the one who tells everyone else what to do. Now, often when I travel, this time, Annette and I drove north from South Carolina, but often when I travel, I fly. And when I fly, I almost always find myself seated on a plane next to somebody I've never seen before. And I have learned through many years of traveling that if you don't speak to your seat partner within 30, uh, 60 seconds of sitting down, the chances are you will go the entire trip and never talk to them. So the minute I sit down, I start to talk. I mean, they can't leave. <laughs> and I always ask them this question, are you going home or leaving home? That's a perfectly innocent question. It gets them talking about home, and so we talk about that. And then I say this, and you try it sometime. I say this to my seat partner who I've never seen before. I say, what do you do? Now, you try it, and when you ask them that question, underline the word you with your voice. Say, what do you do? Because psychologically, when they hear that question and tell you what their profession is, inevitably, after they tell you what they do, they'll look at you and say, what do you do? And I'll say to them, well, I serve on the administration of a Christian college in South Carolina that has 1,200 young people all studying the Word of God, preparing to take the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness to the whole world. That starts some interesting conversations. <laughs> and then as we're talking, sometimes they'll say to me, well, what exactly is it you do on the administration? And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm the president. Or now I say, well, I'm, I'm the chancellor. And when I do, they kind of go like this. Oh, I didn't know I was talking to the big cheese, you know, to the guy that's kind of the head of the whole thing. And I say to them, oh, no, 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 titles, that's no big deal. That just happens to be what they call me. It's just the place God has given me to serve at the school, and I'm just delighted that I can do that. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't do that here? He doesn't say, you call me Lord? Oh, no, no, just no, no title, no, no big deal. No, no, no. Does he say that? He says, you call me Lord? And rightly so, for that is who I am. Don't you forget it. Now watch. 
If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Um, Last year, in April, my wife and I were in Great Britain. In fact, we were there on the day of the royal wedding in London. How awesome is that? Unfortunately, we didn't get a personal invitation to the wedding. In fact, we stayed home and watched it on television like everybody else did. But we were there. And uh, the only reason I mention that is because Great Britain is a constitutional monarchy. Great Britain has a ruler, a monarch. Who is the ruler of Great Britain today? Happens to be a woman. What is her name? Help me out. Come on. Queen Elizabeth. Thank you, Queen Elizabeth. Now, here's the question. Is she the person who runs that country? No. Why? Because Great Britain is a constitutional monarchy. What does that mean? That means that the citizens of Great Britain, by democratic voting process, are allowed periodically to go to the polls, cast their ballots, elect the party of their choice, and from that party or a coalition of parties, a prime minister is chosen, and that's the person who runs the country. And the prime minister of Great Britain today is a man by the name of David Cameron. You say, Dr. Murray, why are you telling us this? All right, now watch. Uh, When I was a student in college, we had a new praise song come out, and it was entitled, He is Lord. And some of you have sung it over the years. He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I've been in congregations of believers who have stood to their feet and sung that song, and they lift their hands in praise to the Lord. And you look around, and every now and then you see a little tear coming down someone's cheek. I mean, they're really into this song. Remember what the word Lord means. Remember what it means. It means the one who has all authority, the one who is the king, the absolute monarch. And I wonder to myself, I wonder how many of those people singing, He is Lord, are really saying this. Jesus Christ is my King, but I am His Prime Minister. I decide where I'm going to go. I decide what I'm going to do. But I would never think of doing those things without asking the Lord's approval. Now, let me tell you what happens in Great Britain. In Great Britain, when the duly elected parliament meets to decide and discuss new legislation, every time they pass a new law, they take a copy of that legislation to the queen. And they ask her to read it. And at the bottom right-hand corner of the last page of that piece of legislation, they always put a dark, solid line. And after she has read the law, they ask her to place her signature there and in so doing, indicate her approval of the new law. The interesting thing is, if she doesn't sign, it's still a law. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Now, I have a little quiz I'd like you to take This morning, I know it's not a school day, but I'm going to give you a little quiz. It only has one question. The answer is true or false. True or false. You have a 50% chance of getting it right. Do not answer out loud. Here is the question. True or false. It is good to include God in your plans. Don't answer out loud. Don't answer out loud. Now watch. If you know anything about this holy book that is the basis of everything that we believe and teach here at Bethlehem Church, you will have said immediately when I gave the question, you will have answered false and you 
would have been correct. Now watch. God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in His plan. And there's all the difference in the world. But now hear me. Everywhere I go, including the campus of Columbia International University in South Carolina, I find young people, middle-aged people, seniors, children, who are sincerely including God in their plans. And the scary, sneaky, subtle thing about it is that most of the plans that most of them are making are in themselves perfectly legitimate. But God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in His plan to disciple the nations. In fact, I know people that come to the Lord with a piece of paper. And at the top of the piece of paper, they put their name. And then on the piece of paper, they start listing the things that they're planning to do. First of all, I'm going to go to college and and get a good degree. And while I'm in college, I'm going to prayerfully and carefully look for a Christian spouse. I'm I'm going to marry a believer. I I wouldn't marry a non-believer. Bible says shouldn't do that. So I'm going to marry a Christian. And then we're going to get get a job and pay off our school debts. And then as we get started out, we're going to buy a house. Folks real estate market is much to your advantage right now. Don't rent, buy, build equity for the future. We're going to buy a house and then no matter where our jobs take us, we're going to find a good church just like Bethlehem. And we're going to go, we're going to get involved. And of course, you know, we're both married and both working and and it won't be easy to get really involved. But, you know, we'll park cars or sing in the praise team or help with the children's program. And if the church has a short-term trip down to the Dominican Republic or Haiti for a week, we'll scrape together the wherewithal and go on that. By the way, did anything I just mentioned to you sound bad to you? All sounded pretty legitimate to me. And they bring this to the Lord and then they put a dark solid line in the bottom right hand corner. And they say, now, now Lord, you're my king and, 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 and I, I, I recognize you as king and so I would like you uh, to sign and in so doing approve the things that I'm planning to do. And the Lord looks at the page and he says, this is very interesting. You see, that's not the way it works because I have a page to give to you. And my page looks just like your page. It's got your name at the top, and it's got a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner. And I want you to sign. And you look at the page, and you say, well, Lord, there's just one problem. What's that? The page is blank. That's right. There's nothing on it. That's right. You want me to sign? Yeah. Okay, Lord, let me see if I got this straight. Um, You want me to sign, and then after I sign, you're going to put stuff there. You got it. Well, my mother told me never to sign anything before I read it. I just want you to sign. Well, could we talk about this first? Sure. What would you like to know? Well, Lord, what if on my page you say, missionary? I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, Africa. I wish I could take you with me to north, northern Zimbabwe, to the Karanda Hospital, 200-bed hospital, 120 degrees in the shade. 75% of all the patients in that hospital are HIV positive. And I've watched the National Believing Staff and the missionary doctors and nurses hug those people, bathe their bleeding wounds, and love those people to Jesus. 
Would you be willing to do that? Lord, what if you say, inner city? I like the suburbs. I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, single? You know, as in, not married. For the sake of the gospel. The Bible talks about that, you know. I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, poor? Jesus was, you know. Or what if you say poor health? I've Last count, I've been in over a thousand missionary homes in 75 different countries. And if I could take you with me to visit those missionaries, I could introduce you to at least a hundred of them who are desperately ill physically. Desperately ill because of where God has called them to live and serve. They're sick because they're where God wants them to be. Are you following me? What if the Lord says, I want you to do that? I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, participate for the very first time in Bethlehem's faith promise program? Or what if the Lord says, I want you to double the amount that you gave last year? I don't know, that's between you and the Lord. I just want you to sign Now, here's what I'd like us to do, just for a couple minutes. I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Up in the balcony, down here on the main floor, ask yourself this question. What's the one thing that if God were to write it on my page, in all honesty, Dr. Murray, I could not sign? If he asked me to do that, no way. If he puts the name of one of my kids on there and says he's going to take them halfway around the world where I'm only going to see them once every four or five years and I'm not going to get to see my grandkids grow up, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sign that kind of deal. What's the one thing that if God puts it there, you'd say, you know, in all honesty, I couldn't sign? Just think about that for a minute. Anything come to your mind? If it does, you have a lordship problem. And the starting point of missions is not missions. The starting point of missions is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what needs to happen here this morning is that some of you need to take that page that you've been writing on and you need to tear it up into a thousand pieces. You need to reach out and take the blank page from the hand of the Lord, sign in the bottom right-hand corner, and in so doing, say to him, Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, I am ready. Lord, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? You see, the issue here is not missions. It's the master. It's not the cause. It's the king. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Lord, the one who can tell me anything and everything and whatever he says, I'll do it. Why do you call me that and still don't do what I say? And you say, well, what did he say? He said, disciple all nations. He said, every man, woman, boy or girl, anywhere on the face of the earth, go, preach the gospel. And as we sit here this morning, 2.35 billion people are still waiting to hear about Jesus Christ for the very first time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, I'm really being hard on you this morning. Intentionally. And I just want you to know that it's not an easy thing to sign the blank page. Let me say that again. 
it's not an easy thing to sign the blank page. You know why? Because what the Lord may put on your page, and by the way, don't you dare sit here this morning and say, he's not talking to me because I'm over 60. What does that have to do with it? Or he's not talking to me because I'm under 12. What does that have to do with it? What the Lord may put on your page may indeed be very difficult. It's always right, it's always good, it's always perfect, but it may not be easy. And that's why it would be wrong for me to end this message this morning without looking with you just for a minute at verse 20. Oh, I hope you didn't close your Bible. Matthew 28, we looked at verse 18. We went, verse 19, we went back up and looked at verse 18. Now we've got to go down and look at verse 20. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says in verse in verse 18, he says, all authority is mine. In verse 19, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. But look what he says in verse 20. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, you know, when us preachers get up and preach, and your pastor, I'm sure, does this from time to time, the pastor will say, now, in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, it says this, and, and, and sometimes, you know, when I was younger and I heard a pastor say that, I thought they were showing off, you know, trying to tell me they knew something that I didn't know, which is true, they do. And, and the reason why a pastor or a Bible teacher says that is not to impress you, but to help you understand the intensity of what the original language of Scripture said. And here in this verse where Jesus says, and surely I am with you always, see the word I there? Jesus uses a very interesting Greek construction here. He uses what we call the ego a me construction. It literally is a repetition of the personal pronoun. If the translators into English translate what it literally says, they would have said this, and surely I, comma, I am with you always. That's exactly what Jesus says here. He repeats the personal pronoun twice. He says, I, I am with you always. Now, why does he do that? I think he does that because he wants us to be sure and understand who he's talking about. Listen, he says, just in case you don't know who I'm talking about, it's me. I, I will be with you always. Now, here's the question. Who is the one who promises to go with us? Answer, it's the one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. We established that up in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I'm going to go with you. Now watch, whenever you see the word authority in the English Bible or the word power in the English Bible, almost always it's a translation of the Greek word dunamis from which we get the English word dynamite. It's a powerful word, and that word is used to describe the Lord Jesus many different places in the New Testament. But interestingly, here in verse 18, when Jesus says, all authority is mine, he doesn't use the word dunamis, even though he could. He deliberately chooses a different Greek word. He uses the word exousia. All right, we have two Greek words, dunamis, which means power or authority. We have exousia. What's the difference? Watch. Dunamis means power or authority. Exousia means power or authority in legitimate hands. 
It's the difference between a criminal with a gun and a policeman with a gun. A criminal who has a gun has dunamis. He has power, authority. He can move you around. He can back you up against the wall. But a policeman not only wears a gun, but he wears a badge. And he has exousia. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have. And I, I am going to go with you. Now, I want to illustrate this to you just for a minute from the world of American football. I love American football. College football, professional football, and to be real honest with you, I would rather watch the game on television than be there in person. Now, it's exciting to be there with the crowd and the smells and the, you know, the whole thing. I, I like that, but I, I prefer to watch a game on television. Do you know why? Because on television, you have the announcers. The commentators, I mean, these guys are an encyclopedia of knowledge. They know all the stats of all the players. And remember when a a, a football game starts on TV, after the kickoff, just before the first play starts, there's a little pause, and they flash up the faces of the starting line. Do you remember this? On the TV, they put the faces, and they tell you who they are, and they tell you their stats. You know, 320 pounds, no neck. It's like, whoa, how, does this, how do these guys' mothers feed them? I mean, these guys are huge. This is what I call a modern-day illustration of dunamis, raw power. I mean, these guys can do serious damage. In fact, that's what they're out there to do. But you know what? The real authority on an American football field is not the 320-pound guard that's lined up across from you. It's the little skinny guy with the striped shirt and the whistle. He has exousia. You see, the guard can knock you down, but the ref can throw you out. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have, and I'm going to go with you. Now let me illustrate this to you from the world of baseball. I love American baseball. And it's been my privilege three times in my lifetime to preach the gospel to the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team in their locker room. I have also preached to the Florida Marlins to the St. Louis Cardinals, and to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the reason why I've been with those men and their coaches in the locker room preaching the word of God to them is not because they know me from Adam, but because I happen to be a personal friend of a man by the name of Jack Hibbard, who for years was the chaplain of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. And I'll never forget the day he called me on the phone and he said, how would you like to speak to the Phillies before their game next weekend? I said, awesome. He said, all right, you're on. And he said, now when you come to the game, I don't want you to do what you usually do. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I'm going to guess that when you come to a Phillies game, you start out a couple hours early, drive down through the suburbs, into the, down into the city, because the stadium, you know, it was right down in the city. And he said, and then you park a couple miles from the stadium because the parking's cheaper. And then you walk two miles to the stadium. And then you buy a ticket way up in the top section because it's cheaper. And then halfway through the game, you keep looking. And if you see a seat that's open halfway down, you go down and you sit there. I said, how did you know all this about me? He says, listen, you don't have to do this this time. When you come, I want you to drive right down to the stadium, go right around behind. You'll see a big iron gate right outside the Phillies clubhouse. And I'll have a big sign on it that says, VIP Parking. You pull your car right in there and park outside the clubhouse. All right. So I did. I drove down, went around behind. Here's the big gate, VIP parking. I started to go in, and the minute I nosed my car in, an armed guard with a gun came out, stood in front of my car, stopped me, and said, where do you think you're going? 
And I tried to explain to him, I was the speaker at the chapel, I had no paperwork, no proof, he was not buying my story. And right then, the clubhouse door of the Phillies clubhouse opened, Jack Hibbard, the chaplain, came out, walked over, stood next to my car, and said to the policeman, I'm with him, and he's with me. And the minute he did, the guy turned around and said, come on in, do you know why? Because Jack Hibbard has exousia. And then when we walked up to the clubhouse, you can't get in. You can't get in the clubhouse. There's an armed guard standing there. He took one look at me, he never budged. Then when he saw Jack next to me, he gets his keys out and opens the door. Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Are you following me? And we walk into the clubhouse, and I kid you not, the very first person I met, very first person in that clubhouse was world-famous third baseman Michael Jack Schmidt. I shook his hand. I just happened to have a clean baseball in my pocket. He signed it. I took it home to our son. Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, Larry Boa. They were all there. I shook their hands. And, and then we had to get in the elevator to go up to the locker room for the chapel service. You can't get in the elevator. There's an armed guard standing there. He took one look at me, never budged. Then when he saw Jack next to me, got his keys out, opened the elevator. Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. We walked into the elevator. And I kid you not, standing right in the middle of the elevator was Andy Musser. Andy Musser, the voice of the Philadelphia Phillies. I've been listening to him on the radio for years. It's because of him that I buy tasty cakes. <laughs> we shook hands. And then I spoke to the guys in the chapel. Then they took me out through the tunnel, out onto the open playing field. You can't go through the tunnel. There's an armed guard there. And when he saw me, he never budged. But when he saw Jack next to me, he led us through, not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. And then when the game started, I didn't have a seat up in the nosebleed section. I had a box seat on the third base side right behind the dugout, not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. And then when the game was over and all those people were still trying to get out of long-term parking, Parking, I was home! <laughs> Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Now watch. I told you about the 600 Arab Christians out in the desert in North Africa. One night after I finished pouring my heart out to them from God's word, a beautiful Egyptian girl who had been studying in the University of Paris and had flown back to North Africa for that conference her name was Sarah. She came up to talk to me. There were tears in her eyes, and she said this. She said, Dr. Murray, I am willing to sign the blank page. My problem, sir, is not that I'm unwilling. I just don't think I have what it takes. I don't think I'm able. I'm willing, but I'm not sure I have what it takes to live far away from my family and to go to a place where maybe they don't want Christians to be there and Learn another language. I, I don't know if I could do that. Do you know what I did? I showed her Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, which tells us, watch, that because Jesus has all authority, not only must we go, but because Jesus has all authority, we can go because he goes with us. Do you believe that? Let's pray right now together. The starting point of missions is not missions. The starting point of missions is the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in His plan. And His plan is to disciple the nations. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that all authority belongs to you. We recognize that. We submit to that this morning. You are our king. Your will be done in every life here this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. We are going to have a time for you to respond to this message. I've talked carefully and prayerfully with your pastor. And I have here in the front this morning something I would like to offer anyone who's willing to leave your seat and come to the front and take it. There's no tricks here. This is not something you turn in. This is something you keep. You put it in your Bible, put it up on your bookshelf. It's a little blank page card. And what it says on the front is this. Lord Jesus, if we could put that up on the... Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere... I am ready. And then there's a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner where you can sign your name and put the date saying, I submit in a new, fresh way today to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. He wants me to be a missionary? That's fine. He wants me to stay here? That's fine. He wants to take one of my children? That's fine. He wants me to stay single for the sake of the gospel? That's fine. I'm just going to sign. Let him put there what he wants when he wants to do it. Then... On the inside of the card, and it's designed in such a way that you can set it up on your bookshelf as a reminder. On the inside, it says this. By signing the front of this card today, I decide that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master of my life. I no longer want to merely include God in my plans. I want God to include me in His plan, whatever that means, whatever the cost, anything, anytime, Anywhere, and then there's another dark solid line on the inside, and it says next to it, witnessed by. And you give this to your husband, or to your wife, or to your friend, or to a family member. And you say, I want you to be a witness to the fact that I have signed the front of this card this morning. Now, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. The worship team, would you come right now? And they're going to lead us in a song. And as we're singing this song, I'm going to come down off the platform, stand here in the front, and if you would like to have one of these cards, I would just ask you to come to the front, receive one, and just remain here standing. We're going to have a word of prayer over you, and then our meeting will be over. But uh, don't hesitate. We're not going to drag this out. I'm not going to, you know, make people cry or anything like that. I'm just asking you to consider seriously the teaching of God's Word this morning. And if you would like to take one of these cards, and you don't have to sign it right now. You can sign it after the meeting's over and then give it to a friend and have them be a witness. You just come as we sing this song together.